Welcome and thank you for joining us on another episode of the Sunday Times Politics Weekly, your behind-the-scenes look at the biggest political news stories in South Africa. My name is Apiwa Tiglek and today we are bringing to you our show directly from Parliament in Cape Town, just a few hours before President Cyril Ramaphosa is set to give us the State of the Nation address. We are joined by the leader of the main opposition party, John Steinhazen, who is going to be telling us what he would be announcing if it were him delivering the State of the Nation address. This icon is racist. I've never ever been a spy. Can the VBS bank uh, loot? The problem is that pinky. I'll never subject myself to whiteness. Order. I'm listening. Can you have consistency, Honorable Chair? Corruption was an Olympic sport. They will always win gold. This is not a shape. Can you please come in? We're with um, the leader of the DA, uh, John Stian Hazen, uh, for our Sunday Times Weekly uh, podcast. Um, welcome, John. Thanks, Apiwe. Great to be with you, and thanks for the opportunity. Um, if you were the one uh, to be delivering the actual State of the Nation address, what would be your biggest announcements? Well, I think that I would focus on bold and brave reforms that the country needs to move forward. I think the president's had two two terms and two sonas of being able to set out dreams and virtuous ends uh, without announcing the reforms. I think we've kicked the can down the road so far now that we actually need to grapple with these things. So first amongst these would be dealing with state-owned entities. They're a ticking time bomb on the balance sheet of the country, and they pose the single biggest financial risk to South Africa's uh, economy and our financial viability. So I would definitely be announcing, starting with Eskom, who we spent 59 billion rand bailing out last year, and we still can't keep the lights on. I'd be starting with them, um, announcing a massive restructuring, selling off uh, the coal-fired power stations to settle the debt, and then also lifting the cap on individual households, businesses, and industry from being able to generate electricity and supply it back into the grid because this will alleviate a lot of the load on Eskom, which will allow the time and downtime to be able to do the maintenance that's required to fix the base load and without having the rolling blackouts that are killing jobs and killing the economy. And then I'd announce governments getting out of the business of being in business. So <laughs> on Eskom, with uh, his previous announcement, so you are not happy with his announcements from last year, uh, restructuring, uh, splitting the business uh, uh, and having a chief restructuring officer in there. You're not happy with that? I'm not happy with it. I mean, it's it, it hasn't yielded the results. Uh, you know, we're still sitting with blackouts. Uh, the head of Eskom says that blackouts are going to be with us for at least another two years. That's not good enough. Uh, every time the lights go off, jobs get uh, get turned off as well. And it's really affecting our, our people and our ability to grow as an economy. You can't talk about preparing for the fourth industrial revolution or industrializing South Africa when you can't, uh, you don't have electricity to power it. So um, I don't think it's good enough. And why it's not good enough is that the whole model is wrong. The whole model of the big clunking fist of state providing uh, a monopoly on electricity production is wrong. And so what he should be doing is unleashing the power of independent power producers and setting in place a, a, an energy revolution in South Africa through private generation of power uh, and introducing competition into the space, which will drive prices down and give consumers more choice on the ground, as well as bringing stability. At the moment, we're solely reliant on a single power producer, a power generator, and a power supplier. And we're, we're seeing now the effects of being at the hostage of that. Whereas if there was a competitive environment, uh, if one failed, uh, customers would be able to migrate to another service provider, and that choice would be there. We wouldn't be 
being held ransom in the way that we're being held ransom to ESCOM. But do you think um, of those who are available in the market, the independent power producers, they have enough capacity um, uh, to uh, at least uh, supply us? Yes, well, they, certainly in the metro areas, that's absolutely the case currently. Uh, you know, but what the president will do by assigning just one independent power producer will unleash a whole flow of, of an industry. Uh, a lot of people are poised to invest, but with the draconian regulation that we have and states' uh, inability to let go of the generation of electricity and wanting to maintain a monopoly, yeah. uh, it's holding it back. But I think that pretty soon, in a very short space of time, you could uh, have uh, a huge change in that. Outside of uh, ESCOM, uh, obviously, what are the other uh, SOEs do you, would you uh, focus on which ones would you just scrap and sell off? Uh, which ones do you think are key and you wouldn't want to, to sell off? Well, I think that uh, you know a complete wholesale sell-off in many instances may not be the answer, that government should remain a shareholder but would cert- should certainly bring on private equity partners uh, to run them. But I certainly don't think the state should be in the business of running an airline, uh, for instance. It's just not the core business of the state and it runs it very badly. You've got to ask yourself the question, how are Comair and Safair able to run profitable operations without a single government subsidy? And yet the most heavily subsidized airline in the country is not able to make a profit or or to run efficiently. And it's because they know that no matter how badly they perform, no matter how badly they treat customers, uh, they can just rely on the state bailout. And so they have the safety net of never actually having to run a proper business or provide a decent service. Um, so there's there's one area where, we, where we'd be able to sell off. So you, uh, are, you agree with Gwede Mantashe on this one? Well, what Gwede Mantashe says and what Gwede Mantashe then does are two completely different things. And uh, I mean, he's trying to act like a progressive on SA, but he's one of the big stumbling blocks on Eskom. Mm-hmm. But why we won't let the, he doesn't want to let go of the state monopoly there. But all things, diamond mines, uh, arms manufacturing, those are all things far better uh, done by the private sector. And as I say, government could still remain a shareholder in there, but what you do is by bringing in private equity partners, you bring the good governance that comes with the private sector uh, into those into those uh, businesses. I look at the telecom, for instance, a massive turnaround in telecom, uh, which is now turning a profit, uh, and government is a shareholder in that, but it is run on uh, with the expertise and uh, professionalism of, of, of the private sector, not uh, crony-connected, CADA-deployed state boards. Mm-hmm. Outside of uh, the SOEs, um, what are the pressing issues you would focus on? Well, I think service delivery has got to be uh, one of the key. And it's been really very eye-opening to travel around the country the last two weeks, uh, all nine provinces visiting communities to understand the state of the nation ahead of uh, the President Ramaphosa delivering his in Parliament. But just to see the complete collapse and inability of government, particularly local government, to be able to deliver services in, in into communities. So communities sitting without water, without electricity, without access to sanitation, uh, with crumbling infrastructure. So there's got to be a turnaround for local government. You can't talk about building a capable state at a national level if you're not able to deliver a capable state at a local level. And a lot of those people are just trying to get by in spite of their municipality, which does everything it can to make their lives as difficult as possible. So service delivery is another huge one. Uh, and then, of course, safety and security. And that is the one cross-cutting uh, issue that affects all communities, whether you're in a township or in a city centre, whether you're urban or rural. South Africans don't feel safe 
in their homes, on their streets, and in their workplaces. And we have a police service that is completely unable to fight crime, and it, you know, it is leaving people feeling feeling vulnerable. Talking about uh, uh, local government, um, you your party is in a number of uh, municipalities where it either governs uh, uh, outright or as coalitions, but. When you go to these committees that you've mentioned, you find similar patterns, you find similar problems. So would you say someone is being harsh on you when they say what you talk about uh, when you criticize the ANC about the running of municipality is not really replicated where you govern. Um, in the city of Cape Town, for instance, when you go to the township areas, it's not as safe as is here when it comes to safety. It's not as clean as is uh, in the CBD. Well, I think that... Uh of course, you know, you, there are problems of governance wherever you are. There's no, there's no Garden of Eden in South Africa, and each local government has its own challenges. But I think if you look at all the metrics uh, of the city of Cape Town, we're way ahead as a metro against any of the other metros in the country. So if you look at government's own reports on uh, household access to basic services, far higher access to water, sanitation, electricity, everyone who lives in the Cape Town area is within five kilometers of a health facility. Everyone in the province is within 10 kilometers of a health facility. Uh, jobs are, are growing at the lowest unemployment rate in the country. Best uh, ability to be able to uh, receive payment for services. And over 80% of the city of Cape Town's budget being spent in previously disadvantaged areas. These are big successes. Even in those places like Nelson Mandela Bay, Joburg and Chwane, you've got to compare where they are now as to compared to where they were a few years ago. Joburg, job centers for people, uh, uh, units to combat corruption and maladministration, 140 cases against corrupt officials laid in that municipality. Chwane, from a from a uh, very poor budget position now to a cash-positive budget. Nelson Mandela Bay, a metro police service for the first time, a public transport system that was that was working, a uh, crime-fighting strategy for the northern areas using technology, ShotSpotter, gone from being the worst metro in the country to business to the second best after Cape Town. So are we there yet? I would say no, but we're certainly far better along in dealing with these issues than any other part of South Africa, and that is through good, clean, accountable government. Realistically, um, obviously knowing uh, or having had your critique of the president, uh, of what he has announced previously, uh, did you say there were fairy tales uh, from your speech? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, from now, what can you realistically expect? Well, I think that what people want to see is concrete action steps. Mm -hmm. We've had the fairy tales, we've had the Tumamina, we've had the bullet trains, we've had the cities in the sky, etc. Mm -hmm. What people are looking for is, right, okay, we can have all those and those are all great, but how are we going to get there? And that's what, what hasn't been, the, those dots have not been joined. Yeah. So if you want to create jobs and you want youth unemployment to decrease, um, then set out the concrete steps that are going to do it. So you know, uh, release entrepreneurs and small, medium and micro enterprises from the draconian labor legislation, make sure they're implementing the Basic Conditions Employment Act, but encouraging them and incentivize them to hire young people, using tax breaks uh, to... Uh, promote internships for, for young people uh, and, and school leavers. Mm -hmm. uh, these are all concrete steps that you can take. And I think that's what people are looking for. And uh, you know, NHI is, is, a, is another area. We, we all know that the NHI is not going to solve the problem. And it's completely unaffordable in the current financial situation that South Africa finds itself in. 
implement the Sazani healthcare plan that the DA's put on the table, ensure universal access to health services for all South Africans in a way that doesn't need to raise a single extra tax. Julius Malema says you guys, uh, or the president likes to uh, call you guys to the side, uh, talk to you one-on-one in a bit to, uh, you know, uh, have an agreement so that when he gets there, you are not critical of him and, and so on. Has he met with you? No, I haven't met with the president uh, and uh, I don't think I'll meet with him before Sona. Um, and, you know, I think that's not how the rules of engagement uh, are taken out. We have an official opposition mm. in South Africa to provide a critique of, of the president's speech, which is why we don't agree in disrupting it. He must have his opportunity to lay out his plans and vision. And we must respond to that. But um, I certainly have not speak to him, nor am I co-opted by him. And uh, when mm. I speak in Parliament, I've always spoken without fear and without favour um, mm. around what needs to be said. And that type of straight talk is what the country needs. And I think if we got more of it from the president, I think we'd be in a far better place than we are now. Mm. Talking about the disruptions, um, what's your thoughts on, 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 on Malema's plan? Well, I don't think that disruptions advance the people's business or the people's agenda one little bit. I think that they actually serve to uh, undermine Parliament and Parliament's ability. And also one of the things that people spoke to me quite forcefully about over the course of the last two weeks is that they feel Parliament's not a place where their issues are raised, that politicians debate things and behave in a way that's important to them, not taking up the issues that actually matter to the daily lives of ordinary people. So I don't think these disruptions help. I think that a thriving democracy, multi-party democracy, needs a robust Parliament that's able to function properly. When you break down uh, that Parliament, you undermine uh, it its ability to be a, a chamber where the people's issues are discussed. So we never get involved in, in that type of behavior. I don't think it helps. But I also think there's another imperative this time, and that's a lot of international investors, ratings agencies, uh, local investors are watching very carefully this evening. They also are looking for the markers that the president's putting out. They're desperately hoping that there's going to be some way out of the current uh, low growth, high debt trajectory. Mm-hmm. If that those reforms don't come and we see Parliament descending into chaos, I think it's a toxic mix that is going to repel investors and it's going to kill even more jobs in South Africa and make life even harder for us. So I think it's, it's we have a duty. We get elected into Parliament to debate, to put on the table ideas and to advance arguments. Disruption, I think, uh, really just detracts from the ability to do that. Okay. And then um, previously, um, there has been this thorny issue of the bouncers and you were the chief whip. You were very vocal about it um, uh, against uh, the violence that uh, uh, erupts there. And at the time, it was meant to protect the then president, which is uh, Jacob Zuma. Um, now, if they bring on the bouncers, what's going to be your stance? Well, my stance uh, at the beginning was that uh, what they were using was SAPS uh, uh, personnel, which I think is a complete violation of the sanctity of parliament because you have to have a separation between the executive and the legislature. And if you have a force that reports to the minister of police, uh, mm-hmm. you are having an interference of the executive and the legislature. So we were very vociferously opposed and we went to court over it um, mm-hmm. to to get legal clarity that the SAPS cannot be used to control Parliament. so But Parliament has to have an ability to be able to ensure that its rules are applied. Mm. And so we have a Parliamentary Protection Service now who are not linked with the SAPS. Mm. They report to the Speaker of Parliament mm. uh, and are controlled by Parliament as a legislature and are not beholden to the executive. 
uh, you're going to get an instance where people's where the disruption starts to really harm us being able to function as a parliament where and people refuse to abide by the rules that they need to leave the house in orderly manner mm. um, you know we've made protest in the house before but we've never had to resort to being thrown out mm. um, you know if you want to make a point you can walk out but to disrupt and be violent i think sends the wrong tone to the rest of the country uh, you know, uh, we, we're trying to tell people that you resolve your issues through dialogue and through talking things through and through negotiation, uh, not through burning infrastructure, not for breaking things down. So I think it sets the wrong tone from Parliament if people witness that, well, that's how you want to get your voice heard, by being violent. So I think there needs to be restraint on behalf of the of the security services. I don't think that they need that that the, the parliamentary protection services should be gratuitously aggressive and that yes, there are ways of being able to exit people outside out the chamber without being uh, violent or, yes, or, or to, hit, to hit people. And particularly when you're dealing uh, with female members of parliament, I think there's a requirement to uh, be circumspect about how they're treated. But yeah. you've got to have a way of restoring order in the chamber and... Uh, the parliamentary protection service is the only way to go. Okay, okay. Um, John, I think we have enough. Uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, Thank you. It's been really great to be with you today. Tune in to Cargumentative every Monday morning on Times Live Motoring. You can join myself, Thomas Faulkner, and my regular gang of automotive misfits as we discuss motoring news, views, and of course, have a cargument or two. That's Cargumentative, only on Times Live Motoring. I'm here at the African Union Summit in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, where one of South Africa's top trade negotiators has emerged as the new Secretary General of the African Continental Free Trade Area Agreement. And this was following a bitter political fight with Nigeria. Amid high political drama, Wamkele Mene, who was also Pretoria's chief negotiator during the AU discussions on the formulation of the AFCFTA, was on Monday night endorsed by the AU Heads of State Summit in Addis Ababa as the newly appointed head of the Secretariat. Mene's appointment was settled by voting by heads of state of African countries following intense debate after Nigeria really blocked Mene's appointment by putting up arguments in favor of their preferred candidate, Sekilia Akintomede, which is a, who is a banker from their country. On Sunday and even on Monday, Nigeria argued for the appointment of Akintomede, even though she only emerged as a third-ranked candidate after a competency-based selection process conducted by the African Union Commission. Mene was number one, followed by a competitor from the DRC. Diplomats um, at the summit here in Addis Ababa have detailed how the matter sparked such passionate debate there was two days of discussions on the matter. It took seven rounds of voting for South Africa to secure the two-thirds majority it needed for Mene's appointment to go through. Just now, I sat down with Minister of Trade and Industry from South Africa, Ibrahim Patel, on why he thought it was important for South Africa to win this fight and for Wamkele Mene to be appointed as Secretary General of the AFCFTA. He was South Africa's chief negotiator, and uh, he, in that period, showed enormous capability in mastering the detail of negotiation, 
uh, hearing the concerns of countries with whom uh, he was negotiating and finding solutions that are balanced and fair because this a treaty requires everybody to buy in. You can't win an argument um, and have a loser and a winner. You've got to persuade and he has shown considerable capability, not only in mastering the detail, but also in the ability to help forge a consensus. Uh, and the argument started during an executive council meeting of the African Union where ministers, foreign ministers of the, the member states met on Friday. And this was supposed to be a run-of-the-mill matter where there was a competency-based process. People were interviewed and ranked um, and there was supposed to be an endorsement uh, by the ministers to the AU summit of heads of state and they were going to then decide on the matter. Nigeria in that meeting already started uh, putting up a defense saying that um, this cannot be the case um, and that their candidate should be better. It was argued Minister Naledi Pando um, is said to have said to the meeting that this is not a political process, that it, he was not even, you know, quote-unquote South Africa's candidate. He was a competent candidate that came out number one um, and that he should have been appointed to the position. Now, insiders had said that um, Nigeria really went for the jag jugular um, in the Heads of State Summit, arguing that their candidate should hold the position Sources have said to us here that Nigerians argued that uh, Akin Tumede's appointment would be a move to boost women empowerment, um, which they actually invoked uh, Ramaphosa's speech when he accepted the AU chairperson position this year, where he said that women need to be empowered in the continent. And they use that um, as their argument as to why um, she should have been appointed as this position. Now, another source with intimate knowledge has just said to us here that the discussion, in the discussion, there was an attempt by West Africa to actually flex their muscles. And it was, it was, it was argued, um, you know, in response that how does Nigeria want this position when they are even yet to ratify the agreement and signed it much later than other countries? Also, it was argued that West Africa was already hosting the offices of the AFCFTA um, because Ghana uh, would be hosting the, hosting the, 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 the secretariat. Now, this really became an issue of Nigeria being accused of politicizing a decision that should have been settled on the basis of competence. Ibrahim Patel said to me in my chat now that this is not a political process. It, they, it needed someone who had deep technical knowledge about treaties and about international trade law. It is tempting to choose a PhD who understands trade theory. The world doesn't work on the basis only of uh, learned knowledge in an academic environment enormous um, uh, knowledge generation takes place in in practice in doing things you've probably learned more about journalism by being a journalist than studying um, journalism and it's the same with with a job like this so i think um comes with um, enormous practical experience and he has the confidence of many countries the AFCFTA agreement is said to be an integral part of rebalancing global trade relations. The agreement is expected to be implemented under Ramaphosa's chairship of the African Union this year 
and will allow for tariff-free passage of goods across the continent. It comes into effect in July this year, but obviously there are some outstanding issues related to the agreement, and now South Africa will have to work to finalize those issues before an extraordinary summit on the matter is going to be held in South Africa in May. Now, when we do the goods trading goods, which is the easier one mm. to just conceptually um, uh, focus on, it doesn't mean that in day one tariffs will be zero. Okay. Countries have a five-year period within which most countries are allowed to then bring their tariffs down. So if, let's say, we were to put this chairs into the list, right. let me assume we've got a 20% tariff on chairs. We have to bring it down to zero within a five-year period. So what we may do is we may take the 20% and say, shift it to 16% in year one, 12% in year two, and so on, until in year five we've achieved the zero percent. We also then have to do work on customs administration to make sure that goods that are declared made in South Africa or made in uh, Ghana are actually made in the countries concerned. The success of the African Continental Free Trade Area Agreement is on the shoulders of President Sir Ramaphosa now that he has taken over as chairperson of the African Union. He said that South Africa assumes the chairship of the AU at an immensely exciting time for the continent as the AFCFTA begins trading. He called it a milestone in the Continental Integration Project. In his inaugural address to the African Union, when he took over as chairperson from Egyptian President Abdel Fattah Assisi, he also referred to uh, the AFCFTA as a move to bring economic integration in the continent. But what was interesting is that Ramaphosa used this, the occasion to say that Africa will no longer serve as a pit stop for goods not produced within its shores. He says that um, the AU needed to put measures in place to ensure that the implementation of the African Continental Free Trade Area Agreement did not result in goods from other countries passing through the continent with very minimum value addition in Africa. We must all ensure that the AFCTA does not become a conduit for products with minimal African value addition to enter and penetrate our local markets under the guise of continental integration. There must be a reason <coughs> there must be a reasonable standard set for what constitutes a product that is proudly make, made in Africa. We have to level the playing field for African businesses so that they are able to operate in a large-scale market unfettered by regulatory fragmentation. This is an integral part of rebalancing global trade relations. Obviously, this trade agreement and the standoff with Nigeria became the focus point of this summit. But the theme of the actual African Union summit as President Sol Ramaphosa took over as chairperson was silencing the guns. And 
there was a lot of focus on conflicts in Africa, whether it was Libya um, and the conflict there. Ramaphosa is saying to the gathering that there needs to be an end to proxy wars where foreign uh, governments sponsor rival factions in, in Africa. There's also the conflict in the Sahel region, South Sudan, um, and they also mentioned uh, Mozambique. Um, obviously, that was a primary uh, cause of discussion in this particular summit. South Africa has its work cut out for it as it takes over the chairpersonship of the African Union. Um, they will also be having an extraordinary summit on silencing the guns um, later this year. And I think that uh, South Africa will have to play a bigger role in mediating conflict across the continent summit that we will hold must come up with the real actions that we as Africans must take to end conflicts and deal with acts of terrorism that are raging in many countries and regions such as the Sahel, the Horn of Africa, and now spreading to other parts of Southern Africa as well. We must also deal with the actions of other countries outside of our own continent that are fighting proxy wars and fueling ongoing conflicts on our continent. Earlier on the sidelines of the summit, I chatted to South Africa's Minister of State Security, Ayanda Dlodlo, where she said that South Africa will have to now start engaging with foreign powers um, to stop meddling in African conflict. As President Cyril Ramaphosa affirmed that African problems need African solutions. Those foreign powers need to be approached by members of, uh, of the EU and our president in particular being the chair of the EU. So when we say foreign powers, we mean so Turkey? Would, they would, I, mean, we would, I, I would imagine that one of the things that we need to be doing is to talk to France, talk to uh, Turkey, talk to Russia, talk to the UAE, all of those people that find themselves at the center of the conflict mm. in, uh, in Libya need to be spoken to, both at a bilateral level, at an AU level, but also at the UN Security Council. President Cyril Ramaphosa obviously has his work cut out for him. It's going to be a very busy year for him as chairperson of the African Union. There will be a lot to follow. But I think that South Africa has an important role to play in the continent. Um, and I think that this is an opportunity for South Africa to assert itself and for Ramaphosa to take leadership. Obviously, there is some criticism that he needs to focus on problems back home. But, you know, as one a South African politician who was part of the delegation said, it's not like any other country who takes over as chairperson of the African Union each year don't have their own problems. So South Africa has to balance and Ramaphosa will have to balance between dealing with our own interest and then the interests of the continent. Economic integration is huge. Um, as South Africa itself, which is a leader um, on the continent in terms of the economy, is going through a lot of trouble. Uh, and now there will be this effort to see how much Ramaphosa will do in terms of economic integration and economic revival, not only in South Africa, but across the continent. For Sunday Times Politics Weekly, I am Kalita Hunter in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia.